it's all about download this piece, download that piece, because they want to convert you because the EMA companies make money on the number of contacts you have in your database. So it's all about conversions, and it's not so much. And they all talk about your buying experience, this and that, but really take away all the conversions. They're just annoying. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was George Bronton. George is the founder and CEO of Membrane, the sales enablement CRM. And in our conversation, we dive into the subject of why it's time to put how you sell at the very core of your business. So we explore what are the elements of the how, of how you should sell, and the role that sales technology plays or can play in making the how you sell better. And we dig into some of the key metrics that sales teams should be paying more attention to. We get into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to George, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review and give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. George, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, always a pleasure. Always enjoy talking with you. Um, you're joining us from Stockholm today, right? I am, yes. I'm here in my basement. <laughs> Outside of, Stockholm. of course, we're, we're all in our basements. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I kind of like it in my basement, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've been working yeah, on my own, my own company for you know, 20 plus years. And it's, it's, uh, for me, it's like been more of the same because <laughs> I've, I've always basically worked out of home. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. At one point, I was thinking before the pandemic is, you know, maybe I need to change my structure a little bit. Maybe you know, go to local WeWork or you know, co-working space and and uh, set up shop occasionally. But then, yeah, <laughs> the pandemic sort of put that thought to an end for a while. So right. Anyway, but it looks like your basement's nicely outfitted. You, know, you got a nice screen behind you and everything. Yeah, I've worked a bit on my my uh, little mini studio here. I did some yeah. webinars myself last year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the biggest problem I had was uh, when you record, when you do video like Zoom meetings, is that you don't look the other person in the eye uh, because you're looking into the, the – the, oh, you're looking on the screen or, in, right. or on the camera that sits a bit either above the screen or below the screen. Uh, yeah, so I yeah. got this really good advice. Um, I think it was a blog post from Seth Godin to get a teleprompter uh, and a place to place the camera behind it. So that was my big, uh, biggest uh, breakthrough <laughs> during COVID. <laughs> so when you're, uh, when you're presenting, not, not uh, so something that's scripted, that's so you've got it. Uh, so you need the teleprompter. No, I don't. I don't use it to, for that, like to read text. I, I just make sure I, I, because the teleprompter reflects the iPad screen, right. lights on a flat right. surface, I, right. and the the camera is straight behind the teleprompter. I can just look straight into the camera, which actually makes it look as if I'm looking you in the eye. Yeah, but you and, can do uh, that with your little green light on your laptop, right? I've never been able to do that as I wanted it. So for me, that was a big breakthrough. <laughs> uh, so I've got this whole setup, and uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm happy with it. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I'm mad. Actually, I, I love using teleprompters when I'm recording 
content that that can be scripted a little bit. True. Uh, yeah, that's to me that's good that's good stuff. Yeah. Okay. So so if people aren't familiar with uh, with you or Membrane, tell us what you do. Yeah. So uh, my name is George. I founded this company, Membrane.com. Uh, I think it was 10 years now. So we're wow. having a wow. big anniversary later this year. Oh, cool. To celebrate party? that. Yeah, we'll we'll have a party for sure. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, well, the idea came uh, to me when I uh, failed a number of times to ramp up salespeople. And uh, I thought to myself that there ought to be a better way to onboard salespeople. And then I started thinking about this whole problem a bit bigger and uh, mm-hmm. realized that a lot of the systems out there are also making sort of assumptions uh, that salespeople ought to know what to do and they ought mm-hmm. to do uh, know who to talk to and when and why, etc. Uh, but Membrane is based on another assumption and that is how we, that we actually need to guide salespeople. Uh, we need to give them uh, sort of uh, the path to or, or, or I'm not sure if I use, use the word path, but just um, guidance, mm-hmm. I guess, on how to sell. Right. Yeah. Well, I think this is – well. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I, I do think that this is, this is an issue that, yeah, confounds a lot of sales, sales leaders and sales managers as they onboard people is this, this idea that, that people coming new into sales – and we'll we'll start with this the cohort that comes in new that you're onboarding that they know certain things they assume they know certain things which they just don't right and but some of these are really basic like that people know how to hold a phone conversation uh-huh <laughs> yes and it's and, and, and just and connect. It's not, yeah. yeah i mean it's well i mean increasingly digital natives coming into into sales have certainly been in having lots of asynchronous communications with with their their network and their friend group, but it doesn't necessarily involve talking on the phone. True, and 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 also I think sometimes the training they have received in selling doesn't help them in their role as a salesperson <laughs> because they've never really been trained on how to help a buyer buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the whole mindset about selling is is off, um, which you may remember I wrote a book about that, and uh, <laughs> yes, it's called "Stop Killing Deals." And I think right. selling is is its own enemy sometimes. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I I would take it even more basic, and sort of along the lines of what I talked about before is is I think that that we also have this this assumption as you know people that you know are leading sales efforts and hiring candidates and bringing them on board and onboarding them is that they really even just understand sort of basic human skills, like how to connect with another human being, how to, how to, uh, you know, have a develop a sense of empathy for someone and what that means and all the steps entailed with that. It's, I always say we should always look at, you know, training the human first and then train the salesperson. Yeah. But we seem to miss that human part. Yes, I I, I fully agree with that. I I had a few really interesting interviews last year. One was with uh, Kirk Kinnell, who was a a former former hostage negotiator. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was a really interesting interview because uh, he shared how 
if if you lie or just say something that's simply not true, you're trying to sort of um, persuade the other party to do something, it simply won't work. Uh, they'll sniff it out. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's the same in sales. You, you can't try to get someone to do something because you want it, because you want your commission. Uh, you have to truly be interested in what they need to achieve, what they need to accomplish, and, and how you could help them with that. But I think the the perspective is sometimes just too egoistic, uh, yeah. which which uh, throws us But that's off. how we train people, right? Yeah, and that's that's why I say selling is sometimes its own enemy. It's right. just don't sell. I mean, it's not it's not what it's about. I mean, it's out it's an outcome of what you've done if you've done it correctly, but yeah, go in and 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 just try to understand and and you, not just try to understand, you should already understand your customer and their business problems going in. Yeah. And then it's your job to to really understand what's most important to them. And I, I talk about this in my new book is, yeah, this perspective is, I think is really at the heart of the problems is that for most people in sales, if you ask them what their job is, what they've been trained their job is, is that all my jobs to go out and persuade someone to buy my product. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's completely wrong. <laughs> I think yeah. your job is along the lines, what you talked about is, is to go out and listen to your buyer and understand what's most important to them. And then help them get that. Yes, and and I like how you put that in in your book uh, that it's also about influencing. Of course, you mm-hmm. should be able to influence their thoughts and and maybe even elevate what they thought they needed into something exactly. even better. Exactly. Uh, right. I mean, that's that's value if you can do that. So I completely agree with that that perspective of don't persuade, but but influence in a in a positive way. Right. So let's get back to membranes because I started. I, got off track there is, is so where do you fit in sort of the landscape of sales technology? Yeah, that's a good question. So basically we're trying to redefine CRM. I think CRM uh, has become a Rolodex basically. It's a lot of focus on the data. So input a lot of data and we will we will then uh, look if you've from a seller's perspective it's it's a lot of, a lot of activities that we mm-hmm. measure. Have you done enough? But not so much have you done the right things? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're trying, that's hence the name membrane. The mem is for memory, which is CRMs are really good at that. They right. store a lot of information, right. but they lack the brain. They don't have the intelligence and the human part of it to really guide you and make sure you're doing the right thing. So we're trying to basically take CRM. We have that piece, of course, but then we, on top of that, we're, we're building enablement technology, I guess you could call it. Um mm-hmm. Uh, which then will guide salespeople and educate them and coach them uh, to do basically do our way of selling or, or help the company define how do we want to right. sell right. in this company and how do we do that in the most effective and efficient way. So it's a new type of, of CRM that is uh, looking a lot at behaviors, not so much at data. Got it. Got it. So, so for a user, what's that an end user? What's that sort of feel like in their sort of day to day usage of it? So we do believe in checklists. Uh, mm-hmm. So I sometimes call the uh, the core workflow in membrane, the opportunity management, pipeline management piece, a uh, a checklist on steroids. Yeah. Uh, so you can build, you can visual visualize your process, but you can also then add the how inside of that process. So you could add videos to explain, 
okay, you're going to do an exploration call. But mm-hmm. what's an exploration call in our company? How do we do an exploration call? How do we prepare uh, for an exploration call? So all of those sort of nitty gritty things uh, you can put into those workflows so that you are sort of guided as you're doing the work. Got it. Yeah, I like the fact you use the term exploration call as opposed to discovery call. One of my <laughs> one of my hot buttons. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just did. Uh, Posted something about it this week on on LinkedIn. I say, yo, there's one of the big disconnects between buyers and sellers is, yeah, you know, just sort of the words we use, right? Is yeah. is sellers have a sales process, buyers have a journey, right? right? And uh, yeah, sellers are are you know doing discovery where buyers are on an exploration. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just different words. You wonder why we're not aligned and oftentimes and with the buyers. And it's funny how you said journey there instead of, because I have uh, something that rubs me the wrong way is when you say a, that the buyer has a buying process, because that's right. also not true if you're no, in a complex rarely, B2B Very sale. rarely, yes. very rarely. And if they do, it's going to be rough for you to actually sell uh, with a margin, uh, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's, that's the whole other conversation we can have on that. Um, <laughs> true, true. So, okay. So one of the things you, and we're sort of, sort of tiptoeing into this, this topic is, is I don't know how on the, on your website you say, cause this is <laughs> something I wrote about in my book. First book is you say how you sell is why you win. Right. I phrased it a little differently, but you know, it's still music in my ears. I said, how you sell is as important as what you sell. Um, And this is increasingly true. This is, it was true 10 years ago when I wrote my first book. It's even more true today is that especially in very competitive crowded markets where product differentiation is really slim. Yeah. It's all about how you sell. Yes. I'm a big believer in that. I mean, everything looks the same today. If if Mm -hmm. you go to, four or five different websites of vendors selling the, a similar solution. They all sound like they're the best thing ever. Right. Uh, so it's very hard for a buyer to see what's what's different. So I think the way we then engage those buyers and how we do that, and, and not just how we sell, but also how we market and how we communicate and how we mm-hmm. then deliver the services that we have sold, it's all that's what matters, I think. Uh, And it probably always has, but like you say, it's becoming even more important in a world where you can go online and and start comparing things and it all looks very much the same. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, and it starts with you as an individual seller. I mean, I, again, I think this has become even more true over the last 10 years is, is this you as the individual seller, as, so at the prime point of differentiation in the mind of the buyer and when it comes to making their decision. You know, what's their experience been with you as the individual? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And, and, and the sad part of that is that very few sales organizations that I bump into have, have really taken that to sort of the next level and embraced it and, and defined a way of selling that they want to be that, that they want to differentiate them. Um, and, and I guess as a as an individual, that might be a good thing because you can really do your thing <laughs> and, and do whatever you Perhaps. want. Or it could be the opposite. That- or it could be the opposite. You're left alone and then you don't reach your targets and you get fired. Yeah. 
uh, I think, so, but but in general, I I think companies or, or leaders or owners need to give this some more thought. Like how how will we stand out in this competitive market uh, when we talk to clients? Which I mean, even down to which words do we use? Because if, mm-hmm. if you sound like every other seller and you're just you know self centered and and that comes through, uh, mm-hmm. you won't build that trust that you need uh, to gain their their yeah their uh, business in the end. Well, it's I like the trust equation, you know, you, you divide it by by the level of self interest that that you convey. Right. What? Well, yeah, and I think that. That one thing that that companies just miss and is they never look at their sales process from the perspective of how is the buyer receiving it. Mm-hmm. What's their yeah. what's their what's their experience with my sellers? Yeah, and and, and, and maybe we could even take that uh, um, to to marketing because I think today. It all starts online, almost always. Sure. Uh, and uh, I'm a bit fed up uh, with all these conversion forms. You know, marketing automation, inbound marketing, it's all about, okay, get people to your website, get them to fill out a form, spam them to death, and then get the salespeople to call uh, mm-hmm. on, on these uh, accounts. But they, they, I mean, for me, that's a pretty poor buying experience if if I just get spammed with stuff uh, instead, nobody ever asks me, why are you on my website? I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. It's all about download this piece, download that piece because they want to convert you because the EMA companies make money on the number of contacts you have in your database. (laughs) So it's all about conversions and, and it's not so much. And they all talk about your buying experience, this and that, but Really, take away all the conversions. They're just annoying. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that... <laughs> yeah, and I but think marketers that's... don't like me saying that, I'm sure, because then they can't nurture them and convert them into MQLs. Right. Yeah, there <laughs> throws off their metrics when you talk like that. Uh, but it is... Right, so include marketing in this whole thing that I was just talking about is, is the buying experience with mm-hmm. your, we'll call sales and marketing. And yeah. and I've been talking about this a lot lately, both not on the show, but also with with the people outside and other companies. And I'll ask the question: It's like, so tell me, yeah, you know, talk to a sales leader. So, what is the buyer's experience with your sellers? If if you were to say, look, <laughs> and I put it in sort of different terms, I said, okay, you're you need to make a decision about, let's say, sales training and enablement, right? So what are the yeah. things we're going to focus on in 2022 to help our sellers improve performance? And they'll say, well, you know, we've looked at our data. This is what sort of tells us where the gaps are. And you ask the question, well, great, but have you ever asked your customers <laughs> yeah. what their experience was and what the gap, where the gaps that they found? And everybody says, well, we do one loss analysis. I said, well, yeah, that doesn't really cover right is yeah have you really quantified what that impact is yes and and, and that's funny because that when we've had that discussion a lot internally um, as well that we you want to sell an outcome right you want to sell that Mm -hmm. you will as a sales trainer or sales enablement vendor uh, 
your role should be or ought to be to increase their sales effectiveness, perhaps, meaning that you are helping them to improve win rates or deal sizes or both. Right. Or both, right. Hopefully. And, uh, yes. But uh, sometimes, and, and we're, we're not the world's best at this ourselves, we, we need to improve uh, this. But, but if you don't talk about these things during the you know, sales cycle, which sometimes the sales cycle is too much about the product, like it's always mm-hmm. about the product, about competition, et cetera. But when you ask a customer, like, why are you even investing in this? What, what is your ambition? What do you want to improve? If you haven't even had that discussion, it's going to be really difficult, of course, to then prove that you're making a difference for them at all. And once you've sold it, how do you then make sure that the customer success team measures the right things? I mean, they should be measuring the increased win rate for the client, not the adoption rate and how many times they log on to the product. Right. So there is a big mismatch there, I think, in many companies, including ours. Like, if we're selling win rates and sales effectiveness, um, why aren't we measuring increased win rates <laughs> and deal sizes? Why are we looking at adoption rates? I mean, that's not really what the customer is interested about. Yeah, <laughs> right. You th- but right, so everybody's using their justification for renewal based on adoption and, and engagement with the product as opposed to actual outcomes. Yeah, and and sometimes it's easy to say, well, you know, the customer doesn't have a reliable way to measure their win rates, which is kind of an excuse. But but and we see that it's actually not too untrue. And and I, I guess we might lead, and that might lead us into some sales process talk. But we see that all the time that companies don't have a clear definition when their pipeline starts. When you put a an opportunity from being a lead into the pipeline and you start measuring sales cycles. Mm-hmm. That's unclear to many. Uh, so then when you start looking at win rates, you're not you're comparing apples and oranges. You don't know what you're looking at. It's like, oh, so your win rate is 23% on average, but Bob puts his sales pro, uh, his, his opportunities into the pipeline the day before he sends the agreement. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Lisa, she puts them in the 100%. day after she met them at a trade show. It's like, how do you even compare that? Yeah, I mean, there, there definitely needs to be a standard definition for sure. Yeah. But it's, it's I'm just laughing because it's like, yeah, I mean, this is so obvious. It's like, I, in part, I think there's there's an incentive perhaps for some managers to encourage that type of behavior because win rates effectively are low, but they Mm -hmm. can sort of mask some of it by some of this other behavior. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the trouble with win rates, not trouble. And the good thing about win rates, the trouble for people that don't want to pay attention to them is, is it is, this is the purest expression of the buyer's experience with, with you as a seller. Right. Yeah. This is this is their referendum on that experience they had with you. And at the end of the day, what else matters? Yeah. If you're a seller, individual seller, and I I'm with you as I I talk to individual sellers all the time who don't really know this number. Yeah. And unclear. so it's unclear. If it's unclear, then they don't have a plan to make it better. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that all the time and but that that's not a reason for 
anyone in our space selling sales effectiveness not to help customers to actually start tracking it if it's i mean exactly. that's like you say it's it's a it's an obvious key uh kpi we have to get better at um but i, I we were starting yeah. to talk about buyer experience and, and now i threw in customer success but i think it's important also once you've bought that you get what you've been promised because mm-hmm. otherwise you won't buy again from that vendor uh so we need to close that loop all the way from marketing to actually um, d- delivering on, on on that promise. All of that to me w- would would be buyer or customer experience, I guess, uh, rather than buyer well, experience or both. Yeah, but it's kind of interesting. I, so I don't know. You're much more f- familiar probably because you probably pay attention to your competitors and and so on. But I mean, you're very open talking about on your site, you know, proving win rates. Mm-hmm. But as I started thinking about it, it's like, huh? Yeah, I don't know that term is used as much in the marketing we see for many other sort of sales tech companies. I think the one that I find to be mostly used is about speed. Yeah. So sell faster, I see a lot, uh, which I find kind of amusing because I don't think you can influence no. that so much as a salesperson. I, I agree, hundred percent. Uh, I think so what you can. Of- what you can influence, though, is the amount of time the buyer has to devote or that you have to devote to to selling. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what I think. You know, I think this idea of, of velocity, yeah, you know, length of sales cycles, has, you know, the ultimate measure is just how much time do you have to invest? How many hours? Yeah, if we're looking at invest? effectiveness for sure. Yeah. Um. As because, yeah, if you want to really say, okay, what's the true capacity of my organization? It's yeah. it's based on how many hours. I mean, salespeople are basically a <laughs> not to dehumanize it, but you know, you're you're an inventory of hours, right? Mm-hmm. So, how are you using that inventory of hours? Yeah, yeah, which which comes down to, uh, I mean, the word qualification is maybe overused and also misunderstood. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not just a one it's something that happens one point in time, uh, but you have to decide which prospects you spend your time with. So, in a sense, mm-hmm. you decide or qualify whatever you want to call it what you put into your pipeline. So, what do you convert from prospects or leads, whatever you call them, into opportunities? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you should do that based on on some criteria that you come up with. Uh, that's just not just gut feel. Uh, and that could actually serve as as the uh, common denominator or, or common definition of your mm-hmm. pipeline, uh, where your right. pipeline starts. So and you can have that based on your ICP and, and timeline and stakeholder involvement or whatever you want to use. Right. Uh, I think that's under underused as well. It's just people just throw th- throw stuff into the pipeline. Uh, sometimes it's just straight from the website. Someone downloaded something, and oh, all of a sudden you have a new opportunity, which is of course crazy. <laughs> but uh, I don't think that's what I w- wanted to get to. Uh, what were you saying just before I, I started on this rant? Sorry, uh, you were talking about. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um... Yeah. You were talking about, so I had something I really wanted to get out of my head. Sorry, I, I, I lost the thread on that one. That's okay. We'll, we'll come back to it, I'm sure. Well, so one of the questions that triggered us as you were talking is, so 
you know, we have this issue, I think, that that I see that we're it's been persisting for a long time. It's not a new issue, but you know, sales tends to look at at uh, our process as being these stage driven events, right? Mm-hmm. Qualifications you talked about it doesn't happen one time; it happens throughout the throughout the selling process. Yeah. But it's oftentimes put into a box, right? We've got exit criteria for qualification stage, and we've got exit criteria for a discovery stage, as if they're these discrete stages when actually they take place throughout the entire yeah. process. So, how do you, when you're designing a process, and let's say, and you know, using a tool like Membrane to sort of create that process so you can track what's happening throughout it? So, how do you account for, you know, fundamental? steps of the process that are recurring as opposed to just one time. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, good question. And it's kind of difficult how you sort of visualize that in, in a user interface. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I think the best, um, I think Gartner has with, with their, you know, um, what do they call it? Uh, works to be done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that the customer has a number of things they have to do, right, in order to to come to a decision at all, and really your your selling process needs to include those milestones or whatever we call them. Um, but yeah, it is of course quite difficult to um, uh, to know because it's going to be different for for every deal. So I look at it more as milestones, and the milestones mm-hmm. can reoccur dynamically based on what's going on. Mm-hmm. So. In, in membrane, uh, a process can be very simple. Uh, like if you're um, if you have a uh, very uh, almost transactional deal, then you can right. actually be okay served by just having a few stages. Like you 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 know it from from uh, classic CRMs, right? But in a in a complex B two B deal, it's going to be all different, right? It's going to be if if this if legal gets involved, uh, we're going to have four or five milestones that they need to uh, make sure happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then those steps dynamically appear in, in your process to align with that. Uh, so part of the uh, solution is to have steps appear or disappear uh, based on milestones that have happened or have not happened. Right. Uh, so that that's one thing. And of course, things can reappear. <laughs> like if you have a... I think scorecards can be quite good uh, in sales. Like if you are uh, on an exploration call, you're finding out some things. Mm -hmm. Like how are they doing things today? Which vendor have they been working on in the past? Is this a high-priority project tied to a bigger initiative? So you have a few questions that you're trying to sort out. So the answer to those questions could be brought into a scorecard, which then has a, a way of triggering other uh, steps or removing other steps. So there's are, certain different ways you could do it. And are you distinguishing a uh, scorecard from a checklist? Yeah. So a scorecard is, let's say it's a, it's a checklist that gets scored. So depending on the responses to the questions in the scorecard, you can set then different, uh, uh, different numbers associated mm-hmm. to that, which can trigger other things. Other things based on the score. Yeah. Based on Got the it. score. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you could have uh, like a relationship score. You could have competitive scores. You could have different types of scoring, uh, and those can change right throughout the process right. as well. So you have to re revisit those to see. Okay, hmm, we got a new stakeholder who's completely anti us. 
<laughs> because he's, his cussing works as a, our competitor. Of course, that right. changes everything. <laughs> yeah, negative five score on that one, yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, but 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 really, if you look at it, it, it it's again, I I think also a management thing. You have to the the managers need to be able to coach their salespeople in understanding how a buyer buys. Or may, I don't really like using buyer and 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 buying decisions uh, or buying journeys. I I rather see it as decision making. Right? They are mm-hmm. making a decision. That might lead to a purchase, but I don't think they are do- making decisions in their companies to buy stuff. Buying stuff is actually something they would like to prevent <laughs> if they can, <laughs> right? They don't, they don't want to buy stuff to buy stuff. If yeah. they can solve it internally, they probably prefer that. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'd, first I use buyer generically as this placeholder in my book for for people on the decision making side. But yeah, no, I. I I can see that. So I think you, the sellers uh, need to be coached by their managers to sort of try to uh, wrap their head around what is the buyer thinking, uh, who are involved, what are they, how can you help them internally to get, and that's where you actually could speed up the sales cycle. If you could get them to be more efficient and effective as a decision team, you could actually say, uh, speed up the sales cycle. By helping them become more efficient internally, not so much about, you know, trying to persuade, like we said earlier, mm-hmm. them to think more positively about what you have to offer. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things I, I do address in my book is, yeah, how do you basically accelerate decisions? Yeah. And. That's selling. Yeah. But I mean, there's <laughs> a way, I, we, not to plug my book, but yeah, lay out a way that do it that acknowledges what you start talking about is, is from the buyer's perspective is buyers have constraints yep. in their decision-making. And if you can acknowledge what those constraints are, which is you know lack of time, they don't have mm-hmm. infinite amount of time to make a decision. They don't have access to an infinite amount of, of uh, information and they don't have a perfect understanding of the information they get. So yes. with these constraints is how do you how do can you best help buyers make a yeah. decision? And I think something that in this competitive world as a sort of decision maker on the buying team uh you will you're likely to try to take shortcuts. Um so if you're buying technology for instance something that we find ourselves uh, in quite often is that we get into this feature versus feature fight mm-hmm. uh, because that's then the they are trying to simplify what they're buying by by creating a checklist of of stuff do you right. have feature a b c d e f whereas in in real life those features are not very important it's actually how are those features put together in order to help you achieve to increase your win rates for instance right if if uh, there's nothing really in the product that helps you drive behaviors to increase win rates, it just it doesn't really matter if you have all these features checked. Yeah, I mean, it's something you were talking about before before we started recording, which is that that the problem that a lot of companies in like in sales tech space have is is what the the metrics they're focusing on 
what they think makes their product success is how widely is the product being adopted within, let's say, the sales team as opposed to is the customer sales team improving their win rates as a result of using the product? Yeah, there's definitely a disconnect there. And and also I think we are not looking enough at effectiveness. We're, mm-hmm. we're just we're, – we're so – uh, we're so focused on efficiency and doing stuff faster, sending more emails, doing more phone calls, that we we're not sort of uh, stopping and looking at the actual effectiveness and how how, how like win rates. If we yeah. have a, like a ten percent win rate, I mean that's that's horrific. <laughs> but yeah. but we've thrown so many people at the problem and so much tech on the problem, so we might actually be driving that top line number uh, according to the uh, to the goals. But it's completely ineffective. Well, yeah. And so I, this raises a question, which I've, I like posing to, to people is, is, sure, if you, and you see this, again, a lot in, in SaaS, we talk about product market fit, right? Yep. Knowing, knowing you've achieved product market fit. But then you look at a company that's struggling on a win rate perspective and saying, okay, well, our win rate's in the low 20% range. It's like, okay, if your win rate is that low... Can you really claim that you have product market fit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I think the answer is no. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could be scaling on the top line still, mm-hmm. as we know companies are, they're doing that. But arguably, if if you can't win at least a majority of the opportunities, yeah, most qualified opportunities in your pipeline, do you really have product market fit? Yeah, well, it's a... It's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that. Um, I mean, from a product perspective, you might argue that you do uh, and that it's the uh, poor effectiveness of the salespeople that's the main issue. Perhaps. Perhaps, but maybe there's a bigger issue at play. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Could be. I mean, everybody wants to pin the blame sort of on salespeople, but, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. I mean, yeah, similar. I'm, just, I'm sorry. Go ahead. As a bootstrapped company, I, right. I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm always a bit um, frustrated about how how my heavily uh, VC funded uh, competitors don't seem to care at all of you know what I would call traditional business metrics such as mm-hmm. uh, actually being profitable, for instance, uh, yeah. Or, or uh, having good win rates, but it's all about it's it's always just top line in our industry because that's how how companies are valued today. It's it's a it's an it's a massive multiple on your top line, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so of course, if if you have the the resources, if you have the the gasoline to to throw on on that fire to to grow it, I mean, yeah, do it. But from a sales perspective i it, it hurts my hurts me in my stomach <laughs> when <laughs> when you have these low win rates and and you just go ahead and 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 um, also take tactics that i disagree with um like you know automating a lot of outreaches mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which i've uh, never really liked but i see the uh, the benefit if you're going after a total greenfield, if you have you, you can sell your product to every company in the whole world, right? Uh, of course, you you might see that that tactic might might work, uh, but for a company that has you know one thousand customers in the world, 
don't use that tactic. Don't believe those blog posts uh, that say you should be doing this because it's not going to work for you. You're going to burn your bridges and get a lot of upset customers. Yeah, well, I think that this plays into a topic I want to get into, which is, yeah, it's how sales tech is used to make how you sell better, right? As you talk about sales, it's about the how. Um, Because I don't, on the surface, I don't believe that, you know, sales tech is inherently good or bad. I think it's just a matter of (laughs) whose hands it's put into and how they use it. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think some cases, yeah, maybe many, many cases, yeah, it's it's used to amplify bad sales behaviors, such Mm as, you know, impersonal mass emails, mass outreach that sort of slash and burn throughout a throughout their TAM. But then mm. also you have you know, buyer-centric orgs uh, that use it effectively, you know, tools like Revenue.io's Conversation AI, right, to listen to call recordings and, and coach better performance. There they're focusing on becoming more effective. But I think yeah. that, unfortunately, the balance is still that, or at least because there's enough companies that are using it poorly, both marketing automation and sales technology, that, yeah, you sort of get this impression it's like, the lesson that hasn't been learned, I think it's sort of a general cultural issue and with technology in general is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Yeah. And just because someone else is doing something right. successfully doesn't mean that that will work for you because I right. think that's the missing point. All of these companies that have uh, a lot of marketing, they also have a lot of marketing dollars. And, and of course they are touting this as the way to do things and it works for them but it might not work for you. So I think you have to just sort of apply it to your own sort of selling environment. And that's where I think some people go go wrong because they, they listen to, and, and, and there's such an appeal in automation uh, that we believe it's, it's going to be a shortcut. It will be easy. Oh, I don't even need salespeople. Yep. If yep. I just do this and use this automation tool, people are going to come to us and buy from us. Uh, so we want it to be like that, but it's not. No, it's this fear of missing out, right? The FOMO effect. <laughs> yeah, that too. Like plays plays big into it. Yeah. You know, if you see somebody else, to your point, somebody else using uh, a tactic that maybe you don't agree with, you think is ineffective, or is uh, you know creating bad image of of a company in the marketplace, but you think it's working. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure people feel to do it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, so it's really a cultural issue to some degree, right? So, I mean, how how do we how do we change sort of the culture within well, sales? Because you know, there's a, just a few weeks ago, you know, read a tweet or a blog post from a prominent investor, a VC investor, saying. Win rates don't matter. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd love to. I love to read that post. Yeah, I'll, I'll get you a link to it. <laughs> and it's like, huh? Well, it's interesting. You have somebody that's sort of a prominent voice in the industry saying, "Yeah, don't worry about it, right? Don't worry about it. Just keep doing what we're doing. Let's let's just do more, 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 more." Mm. But I think it's I I get that from from an investor's perspective because if you get you know twenty times revenue. Uh, as your valuation, mm-hmm. uh, you could throw a lot of money at the problem and and still see your valuation 
go up to compensate for the ineffectiveness. Which is what has happened. Yes. Which is what is happening all day, all day right. long, right? Right. But there will come a time where that is not the case anymore, I think, uh, where profits will actually matter and where top-line revenue is not the maybe the multiplier um, or not at, at least not at 20x like it mm-hmm. is today. And then you have to sort of rethink. And, and, and the culture, I think we humans are very short-sighted uh, most of the time. Uh, so we're not going to change unless we really have to change. And if your investor says, don't bother about it, why would you change? I mean, just just continue throwing money at the problem. And maybe you you sort of slowly iterate those those win rates over time. That's how they reason. Mm. Uh, but it's like the burning platform. When the the platform starts burning and and you start churning customers and uh, you you start burning too much money, then I think the culture might change. Or right. I don't know if the culture changes because culture is something that's really hard to change quickly. Yeah. Well, I wonder if there's truly a a hiccup. In the economy. And, mm. you know, we have more of a sustained recession, which we haven't had since the 2008 crisis. Is there's been this sort of like 14-year period of sort of uninterrupted, generally uninterrupted bliss, right, from mm. a growth perspective, is what happens when the economy really becomes challenging? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who knows? I mean, the, when interest interest rates are this low, of course, you, it's it's difficult to find good good investments. Uh, and SaaS is a is a really good model. I mean, it's recurring revenue, it's tax, it's it's uh, reproducible, it's IP, it's fantastic. So, so I get the I get the high valuations, uh, but I'm a very you know. I'm, traditional business person <laughs> i do think the uh, i i i like to see businesses as something you build to sustain mm-hmm. uh, and and increase the the quality of life of the people who work there and their families and, and, mm-hmm. and over a longer time i'm not the guy who sort of builds something and flips it right. but i think the the culture right now in in saas or tech it, it's very much about build it and sell it uh, you build something, you scale it really fast, and then you exit it, and you get a, a boatload of money, and uh, that's the success. To me, that's not really how I measure success. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a cultural thing, I guess, as well. It is. It is bigger topic for us to tackle at some point. So um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, George, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure as always. Uh, I do want to remind people because I I. Sincerely think that that membrane at membrane.com has one of the best sales blogs out there. So uh, George always writes very thoughtfully about it and recruits other people that that do likewise. So I encourage people to check that out as well. Let's check out membrane.com. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Andy. Yeah. And if people want to connect with you, LinkedIn, the best way to do it? Yeah, LinkedIn. I have a strange last name, Bronton, so it's easy to find me. Yeah. B-R-O-N-T-E-N. All right. George, talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, George Bronton, for sharing his insights with us today. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.